Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you, Lord, for all the good things you give us. Father, we would see Jesus today. Father, we would hear Jesus today. And Father, by your spirit and through your word, we would love Jesus today. And we ask in his name. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, my youngest child, who is six years old, was invited to a 90th birthday party. Uh, it was for, it's beautiful, beautiful, it was for his really close friend, June. Um, our little Fletcher struck up this really lovely friendship over the years with June, who turned 90. Um, at the party, um, and he loved, the party was even better because he got to leave school about an hour early on that day to go to this party. It was an afternoon tea. At the party, amidst fresh chicken sandwiches, cups of tea and chocolate cake, Fletch got talking to Ross, June's son, who you can see on the screen. There they are um, at the party. That's Fletch and Ross. Um, they've, they've actually known each other for quite some time and shared cups of tea and all kinds, but for all of Ross's many, 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 many good qualities, he has one glaring flaw. He's a passionate Collingwood football club fan. I wasn't at the 90th, but it sounds like Ross took the opportunity at the party to convince my little Fletch to switch allegiance <laughs> from Richmond to the Magpies. Dad, do you want the good news or the bad news first? Which is what Fletch said as I came home from work that night and saw him at the end of the day. Always, always the good news first, Fletch. That'd be great. Okay, so Dad, the party was great. That's the good news. Now the bad news. I've decided to follow Collingwood. (laughs) I stood there for what felt like an eternity... (laughs) And then from my mouth came forth Fletcher. That's one of the most stupid things I've ever heard. (laughs) And well, to be frank, it's completely unthinkable. Now, we've reached the point in the sermon, which is the book of Hebrews, where the pastor who has laid before us all that God has done in providing Jesus for us as the great high priest, having raved about Jesus' all-sufficiency And now he basically spends the next two chapters, chapter 10, verse 19, through to the end of chapter 11, saying to his original hearers and to you and me by extension today, it would be totally unthinkable to stop following Jesus now. Even more unthinkable than my kids ditching Richmond for the Collingwood Magpies. In this sweeping, impassioned plea, which kicks off in chapter 10, verse 19, runs all the way to the parade of the faithful ones through chapter 11, our pastor mounts a four-part argument, three points this week, some big point next week. That's a pastor's way of saying, come back next week for the next little bit. But in this little section, he highlights that the only sensible, reasonable response to all that we've seen so far in the book of Hebrews is to keep trusting Jesus until the very end. Giving up is unthinkable. And it's plain right from the start of our section, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, where the pastor basically says, here's the big point, giving up is unthinkable because of the benefits 
of belonging to Jesus. The pastor starts to pile up the real-time changes that Jesus' work on our behalf have actually made. Now, not much in here is actually new to us if you've been through Hebrews so far with us, but what he does here is just rams home the privileges that are now ours by right, which have been set up by Jesus to help us to live for Jesus and love like Jesus right now and until we see him and enjoy him forever. And when we read this, it'll make the thought of giving up seem kind of weird. Have a look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body. Now the word here, confidence, here actually carries the idea of authorised access. The work of Jesus gives us basically the ultimate backstage pass, which I'm hoping to get at Taylor Swift next year. But anyway, um, Jesus has opened up a fresh, a true and better pathway to God. He's opened up the curtain that had blocked our way to knowing God and enjoying God himself. How's he done it? Well, Jesus became one of us and sacrificed himself, offered himself for us. So when we come up against that barrier which used to stop people like us getting into the presence of God, all we find there now is Jesus himself saying, come with me, come on, come with me. And what difference does it make? Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. The new covenant that Jesus has installed and is now operating through the power of the Holy Spirit means that we can now respond to the gospel properly because the Torah, the law of God, has been written on our minds and on our hearts. God's made it possible for us to understand and believe the gospel so that we can enjoy a relationship with God, our maker. We can draw near to God with complete confidence knowing that we belong to him. What's the basis of our confidence? Well, the pastor says, verse 21, he continues, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We can walk into the very presence of God, our Father, our Maker, at any time because of the work of Jesus. Our conscience is clear because he continually washes us clean. And all this, right, if you've been here for a little while through, um, through Hebrews, our pastor's drawn on the book of Jeremiah, and particularly Jeremiah 31. But here the pastor draws on Ezekiel 36. That's why Sandy read from Ezekiel 36 these words. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land. I will give your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. This new work that God has done in us, in our hearts, means that we now want to live God's way. We just want to live in a way that pleases him because we've been rescued and redeemed and loved by him.
The pastor says giving up is unthinkable because of everything that is ours in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there is no way that Jesus will come up short. There's no sphere of life where Jesus' provision is inadequate. There's no subset of his commitment that he won't be able to deliver on. That's why the pastor can say in verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. It's probably better translated, let's hold fast to the confession of our unshaken hope for he who promised is faithful. Nothing can shake this hope. Why? Because the focus is squarely here on God's utter dependability. He says, let's keep living out, let's keep proclaiming, let's keep believing in the utter all-sufficiency of Christ, for he is enough. Which takes us to verses 24 and 25. Here's another spot, actually, where the translation could be a little bit sharper. It's actually, this is the little translation. Let us consider one another how to literally provoke love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, capital D, approaching. The final benefit here of belonging to Jesus is that God has given us each other. We can't give up because of one another. And this is a bit of a weird moment, right? I'm about to I'm gonna get you to do something weird. I want you to actually just look around at each other. And just like, like literally do it. It's a bit weird. We don't often do this. We're sitting in pews, so you can just look at heads. But just look at each other. Say hi. God's given us each other. The pastor says, think about that. Don't just think about yourself, but remember how God has gathered us together and, and now he wants to make sure that we don't forget either the privilege and also the responsibility of being God's people. We're supposed to, according to Hebrews, constantly provoke each other, which comes more naturally to some of you than others. I get that. But here we're specifically to provoke one another to love and good deeds. If we're going to do that, we can't neglect what the pastor calls the epi-synagogue. Can you say that with me? Epi-synagogue? Epi-synagogue. There you go. It's the local church. Yeah? You can't ignore people if you're trying to stir them up to love and good works. And if you're ignoring people, you can't offer them the kind of encouragement they need. Uh, one lexicon I looked at describes the meaning of this word covering everything from a warm arm around the shoulder to a good kick up the butt, yeah? And that's what we all need. Sometimes people in our church community do need that sidling up alongside them and the arm around them to say, it's going to be okay, God is faithful, you can depend on him, he is enough. There are other times when people are doing stuff and you need to just give them a good old up the bum, right? Get on with it. We need that. That's the shape of encouragement. I hope you can see in this short but really dense opening passage, the pastor says Jesus has made it possible for us to live in a way marked by faith, verse 22, in a way that's marked by hope, verse 23, as well as a, a life that's shaped by love and good works, verse 24 calls us to draw near to God, basking in his presence, holding fast to what we've believed, and he calls us to consider each other. There's a sense here, right, that these verses, 
19 through 25 in Hebrews chapter 10 are like a, like a mini-me of the whole book of Hebrews, like a condensed version of the entire thing, the distilled essence of Hebrews. But they remind us again and again that giving up on Jesus is unthinkable, that Jesus is enough. That cry, right, that, that God is enough rings out time and time and time again through the whole counsel of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. God is enough. God is enough. He is enough. Psalm 103 says this, Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The Bible has this strong link all the way through between gratitude and perseverance means that if we're going to keep going in the long haul, we need to make sure that we're regularly reminded of God's goodness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. The rhythm of our days, our weeks, our months, our years, our lives needs to be punctuated with reminders all over the place of the goodness and the sufficiency of Jesus. We need to be reminded that the gospel, brothers and sisters, isn't just true it's also good. It's not just true, it's also good. We need to remind about that over and over and over and over and over again. Our God is enough. Our good God is enough. We need reminders of his goodness and that he is enough all the time. I don't know about you, but I need to remind of that all the time. Every week. As we gather here at Cedar Light Church North Adelaide, we need to remind it together that God is enough as the Gospels proclaimed week after week. That's why Jesus told us to celebrate the goodness of God regularly by celebrating the Lord's Supper. That's why we're supposed to signal God's goodness in building his people through the public baptism. We need every reminder, brothers and sisters, that we can get that God is good and that he is enough. Weekly DGs are just an added bonus. Because it's so much easier to keep going. In fact, it becomes unthinkable to give up when we see and enjoy the benefits that are ours in Christ. When we believe he's enough. So do you? Do I? In whatever we're facing right now, believe that Jesus, our great high priest, is more than enough. Enough to satisfy us, strengthen us, protect us. Enough to make us step out into the world with our heads held high, knowing that we are secure in him. Enough to get us through. Because he is. That's the first reason it's unthinkable for the pastor to think that we'd ever pack it in. Unthinkable. But there's more. Verses 26 through 28 of chapter 10. The pastor says, Giving up is unthinkable because we're answerable to God. Now, the mood changes dramatically in verse 26. I don't know if you noticed that as Sandy's reading. It's like, you know, provoke each other, encourage each other, and then boom, 26 kind of hits us. It says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. One commentator writes, The sufficiency of Christ is very real, but the consequences of abandoning Christ's provision 
are tragic. I think that basically captures captures it. Christ is poised to lavish on us all that he has secured as the great high priest, but if we won't have him, then we'll come face to face with God as our judge. Now, the pastor here is very, very, very clearly a pastor. He's got a pastor's heart. He's very aware of accidentally crushing real believers who might have a real tender conscience. He definitely doesn't want sensitive, faithful, but not yet perfect believers rushing off over the next few days to beat themselves up about various things. That's why in the original language he starts emphatically with the word deliberately or willfully at the very start of the verse. Then he backs it up with a present continuous, goes on sinning, And just to make sure he's not talking about, you know, taking a misstep or stumbling into sin, he says, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. He's talking here about sin that is intentional, informed, persistent. He's talking about knowingly, consciously giving up on the gospel rather than drawing near to Christ in desperation. This is turning our back on him and walking away in the opposite direction. Back in chapter 6 of Hebrews, when Tim Patrick came and spoke, he talked about, the Hebrew, the pastor there talked about the impossibility of people tasting and seeing how God is good, uh, coming back to him in repentance when they've fallen away. There he was trying to shake people out of lethargy and apathy. He comes back to the same theme here with a new intensity. He actually says, we here to bring it home. His basic question is, how could we give up knowing what we now know? How could we give up now knowing what we now know? And he picks up the Old Testament, the common Old Testament insistence that there's no sacrifice for deliberate sin like this. He draws on the language of Isaiah 26 verse 11, uh, talking about the fury of fire that consumes God's enemies. He says to act like this, to ignore Jesus, is in effect to declare yourself an enemy of God. He says, don't do the unthinkable and reject Christ. His language and argument from verse 28 of equally full on. Anyone, verse 28, who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He's talking about the penalty for idolatry in the Torah, in the law. But he says there's actually something worse than the death penalty. It's nothing, he says, compared to what God will mete out on those who know the truth and yet reject it. How much more, he goes on, How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctify them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? Each of those phrases, by the way, is, I think, pretty shocking. The pastors just spent 10 chapters or thereabouts outlining the beauty and the truth and the sufficiency and the significance of Jesus Christ. He says, ignore him, you trample him underfoot. The pastor's just spent the last three chapters underlying Jesus' unique, once-for-all-time, matchless, peerless sacrifice for sin. 
And so he says to treat the blood of Christ as less than significant than any other kind of blood is appalling. And to denigrate the spirit of the new covenant, to reject Jesus' power and presence, to give up on the gospel, stupid. It's dumb. It's unthinkable. Because it ignores the fact that we're all answerable to God himself. Verse 30. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. These are words lifted straight out of the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Our God is the God who vindicates those who hang in with him by faith and judges those who reject him. Our pastor says, brothers and sisters, you need to remember this. Verse 31, it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I think there are a couple of ways of looking at this, of thinking about this. The first is to start with the kindness and the mercy that God has shown us. The great John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress author, once wrote, Godly fear flows from a sense of the love and kindness of God. Nothing can lay a stronger obligation on the heart than a sense of or hope in mercy. Given the mercy that we've been shown, laid out for us in such vivid, beautiful colour in this sermon, when we see Jesus, our great high priest, well, the very idea of spurning what God has done for us in Christ is appalling. The other way of considering this is actually to start with the heinousness of our sin. It's not exactly our preferred way of thinking these days. Right now, I think we're more comfortable speaking of sin as brokenness or of mess or maybe imperfection. I've got to say that's my default. I prefer that. But we need to press deeper. In his essay called The Justice of God and the Damnation of Sinners, Jonathan Edwards wrote these words. They're not on the screen. You're going to have to lean in and sort of get your Puritan on, right? But he wrote this. The crime of one being, despising and casting contempt on another, is proportionately more or less heinous as he was under greater or less obligations to obey him and therefore, if there is any being that we're under infinite obligation to love, honour and obey, well, to have a different attitude must be infinitely faulty. He goes on, Our obligation to love, honour and obey any being is in proportion to his loveliness, honourableness and authority. But God is infinitely lovely. He is infinite excellency and beauty. So sin against God, being a violation of infinite obligations, must be a crime infinitely heinous and deserving infinite punishment. This is why walking away from God, giving up on Jesus, is so unthinkable. Because it means choosing judgment over mercy. Because it means paying the price for our infinitely heinous crimes ourselves. The pastor says, don't give up. Because that's the alternative. 
which takes us to verse 32 to 39, where the pastor turns from what we'll lose to what we'll lose out on if we do the unthinkable. He says, giving up is unthinkable because of what we have to gain. Much of what he says in the rest of chapter 10 could really be summed up by saying, I know you guys aren't quitters, so just hang in there so you can enjoy your reward. Verse 32, remember those earlier days after you'd received the light, come to know Jesus, the gospel, when you endured in such great conflict full of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. Clearly the faithfulness of these young believers to whom the sermon's been preached for the first time, these young believers have demonstrated to the pastor that they're the real deal. They'd put up with suffering themselves for being followers of Jesus and they'd stood with brothers and sisters in Christ who were also suffering. They'd shown what I reckon are kind of almost like the twin marks of being a genuine follower of Christ, being willing to suffer for Jesus and also being willing to stand with those who are suffering for Christ. Both of those right, are a dead giveaway that they've been mastered by the Lord Jesus Christ to the point where they've realised it's actually not about them. He goes on in verse 34, he goes further. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Now you've got to remember, brothers and sisters, that in the Greco-Roman world, first century, Visiting people in prison was not an admirable thing to do, yeah? It didn't show that you were a little bit left of centre, you know, compassionate, loving, caring, other person-centred. It was to align yourself with people who were in disgrace. It was putting your own reputation on the line. But guess what? They gladly did it. And they put up with not only ostracism, but they also put up with the injustice of people taking their stuff with impunity. I've got to confess, brothers and sisters, I don't like members of my own family messing with my stuff, right? I've got a desk at home which is laid out really well. I get really grumpy when things go missing or are moved in the wrong spot. But such was the impact of the gospel on these brothers and sisters that they didn't flinch when they were robbed, ripped off or ransacked. Why? Because they had a better possession. They had a better possession. It was better. Why was it better? Because it was in Christ. The pastor said, you've already shown by the way you've related and suffered and stood with those who were suffering that Christ is better by far. You know he's the greatest treasure of your soul. So in verse 35 which is really the linchpin of the whole passage, he says, so do not throw away your confidence, your unlimited access. It will be richly rewarded. The ultimate reward is nothing less than knowing God himself through Christ. How could we give up when we have this free access that we've tasted now but are yet to fully experience? How could we give up when God our Father is waiting for us. I realised on my way to church this morning, um, I walked from home to here with Bazzi and 
a song came to my mind that I think works really well here. And then I, was, I said to Bazzy, feel like I've been singing a lot in sermons lately, Baz? And he goes, why do you do that? Because I'm a great singer. No. But how can we give up when God is waiting for us? Which reminded me of this beautiful song. Alleluia, what a day it will be. We sing this, right? Alleluia, what a day it will be. For at home with you, God, my joy will be complete. As I run into your arms open wide, I can see, I will see, my Father who is waiting for me. My Father who is waiting for me. It's a good thing I stand down the front often when we're singing because I tear up a lot. And you'd go up, we've got a pretty shaky pastor who cries a lot, you know. Oh, it moves me. How can we give up when God is waiting for us? That's the point of verse 36. Just keep going. He says, you need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Don't pack it in. Don't pack it in. Think of what we have to gain. At this stage in the chapter, the pastor turns to Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. It's a little strange but actually explains a lot what happens next week, actually, by the way. But in verse 37, he says, quoting Habakkuk 2, In just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, verse 38, But my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. The Old Testament prophet Habakkuk is looking forward to the day of the Lord, the day when God himself would intervene with salvation and bring judgment. Now the pastor states clearly that that day is actually the day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. The trumpets blast, he comes down, and heaven and earth come together. New creation, God's people go to be with him forever. The coming one will return. And when he comes, he'll take pleasure, not in those who've packed it in along the way, but in the righteous who live by faith. And then he says, come on, guys, that's us. Come on, that's us. Verse 39, we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. It's by trusting Jesus all the way in his strength that we'll avoid the devastation of final judgment and inherit the kingdom. As I close, I want to say publicly this morning, if one of my children, actually if all my children and my entire family one day decided to abandon Richmond and follow those terrible magpies, I'd be sad. You could probably hear me wailing actually from Prospect, but I'd be sad. But I'd get over it. But for any of us to abandon Christ to walk away from Jesus. That'd be unthinkable. Honestly, how could we think of giving up when we've tasted and seen all that Jesus is and just how good he is? He's the lover of our souls. How could we think of giving up on Jesus and consign ourselves to the judgment of God? How could we think about giving up on Jesus when we've already known the delight of living with and for God, suffering with and serving alongside our brothers and sisters even here, enjoying access to God 24-7, even now, even in our messed up, broken, imperfect world.
It's unthinkable. How could we give up? For we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed. But no, we belong to those who have faith and are saved. We keep going by faith. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Hallelujah, what a day it will be. For at home with you, our joy is complete. As we run into your arms open wide, we will see our Father who is waiting for us. Our Father who is waiting for us. Loving Father, we ask that you would enable us to grasp afresh this morning the gospel with our heart, our minds, and our souls. With the help of your Spirit, we'd see the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ seated at your right hand so clearly that it shapes every part of our lives. Father, help us to keep going. Father, amidst the various wounds we experience along the way, whether they're wounds that are self-inflicted, wounds from others, wounds even from others in our community, here at church. Help us to keep going, to not give up. And Father, even this morning, guide us to people in our community here who need an arm around the shoulder, a word of encouragement to press on. And Father, maybe even guide us towards people who need a bit of a kick up the pants as well to keep going, to keep coming back to the Lord Jesus. So Father, help us to keep going. Help us to not give up. And Father, give us the strength to keep living by faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.